0: Alexander Price, five, five, and you're listening to the Number Station. Five, three, five, six, Hello, and welcome to the first official episode of the new format. What was Machine Elf Radio and was then Practical Neoplatonism is now the Number Station. This is going to be now about espionage and mysticism, the intelligence community, unseen realities maybe even a little bit of what my friend Corey calls the esoteric deep state. If you've been a long-time listener, you might remember Corey from an earlier episode. Uh, Anyways, um, today I thought I'd start off with just a brief explanation of what a a number station is. A number station is a shortwave radio station that broadcasts messages, uh, which are frequently A a recording of a voice or a computerized voice reciting sets of numbers and the sets of numbers are encoded messages that are that are being broadcast by intelligence agencies to their officers who are working undercover in foreign countries I think they first started hearing them during World War one they first started broadcasting the intro that you just listened to includes samples from uh, recordings of actual number stations. So so a number station is basically a, a, a radio station that's broadcasting uh, a secret coded message for a very specific audience I suppose. So on that note what I would like to talk about today on this first episode of at least this first episode of the new format is um, kind of the the history of cryptography and mysticism. And I'm going to talk about two examples in particular. Those examples are uh, a certain passage from the Zohar, which includes a sort of encrypted or coded permutation of a verse from the Hebrew Bible. And the second one is a book by a medieval cryptographer and occultist by the name of Johannes Trithemius, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but I think that's right, Johannes Trithemius, who wrote uh, uh, this book called Steganographia, which is a book about how to communicate through the use of spirits, but it has its own secret. But by way of introduction, I do want to start with uh, revisiting my undergraduate thesis, which um, is another topic that has come up in a previous episode this one was actually a pretty recent episode called speaking of the ineffable so me and greg and isabel talked about my undergraduate thesis uh it was titled greek allegory mystery and meaning from theogenes to philo of alexandria uh and this is available up on my um academia.edu profile if you just search for my name alexander price so um what i was writing about there was um the history of ancient Greek allegory and more broadly, the mystical techniques for deciphering the um, enciphered communications of the gods, the coded messages, because uh, gods don't speak openly. This is a, um, a quote that I have right on the front page. It's from It's a, a quote from Heraclitus, who said, The Lord whose oracle is in Delphi, neither indicates clearly nor conceals but gives a sign and so the the lord whose oracle is in delphi is apollo but what heraclitus is saying is that you know the way that god the way that the the god apollo communicates it's not open so that everybody understands it without any effort or special knowledge but it's also not so hidden that it's inaccessible he uh, speaks through signs in the ancient world those kinds of signs could be things like the patterns of birds flying in the sky or patterns within the remains of a sacrificial offering in the entrails or at delphi it was these uh, enigmatic poems that the uh, priestesses would would deliver and for me i think that's a great place to begin thinking about the early history of cryptography and mysticism in the ancient near east such as um, which is is like mesopotamia and the descendants of mesopotamian and canaanite culture who are the hebrews there was a uh, very elaborate system of numerology and number mysticism where each each letter of the alphabet had a numeric value and, and, and mystical meanings were derived from the numerical values of words in a very, very similar way to what we associate today with uh, the practice of Kabbalah, or at least one of the practices within Kabbalah, which is the, the numerology of uh, words and letters. But I think it's fair to say that throughout the ancient world, there was a fairly universal belief that divine beings, such as a god or a god but also daimons or geniuses, you know. That the the way that they communicated with humans was cryptic and required a specially trained person who who was trained in the knowledge or wisdom of how to decode the encoded communications or the uh the cryptic communications of the gods. Ultimately I think that it's rooted in the sort of universal effort that humans share with all animals um, to try to understand your environment to the best of your capacity and that effort to understand is perhaps the beginning of communication and communication broadly you know um, that sort of science of understanding and making yourself understood gives rise I suppose to a sort of religious impulse, you might call it, uh, or mystical impulse um, to understand invisible things, invisible things including spirits, uh, demons, gods, but also much closer to home to understand the intentions of the people and uh, beings around you, the animals, you know, are there, are their intentions friendly or hostile, you know? And in that context, the cipher, I think, is unique as as a form of communication whose meaning is deliberately concealed, but also does not have any surface meaning. It's just gibberish unless you have the key. So I'd like to go ahead and move on now to um, to the Zohar and to Trithemius. so these uh, these two examples that I've chosen. From the Zohar and from Trithemius, uh they're not from the ancient world. these are from the Middle Ages, so it's a huge jump forward in time but um but i but I chose them because they really speak to this uh um connection between mysticism and espionage that uh that that I'm interested in now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Zohar. Um, just a very brief introduction. It's uh, um, another book that was written in the Middle Ages, uh, according to to academics. The uh, uh, religious observant uh, Jews will say that it's much, much older. And I, I can accept that maybe the wisdom contained in it is much, much older, but the text was composed in the 13th century. and The Zohar is the main source of Jewish mysticism, and Jewish mysticism is notoriously difficult to understand. The most recent English translation of the Zohar by Daniel Matt is, I think, 12 volumes, and each volume runs around 400 or 500 pages. So really this massive, massive 12-volume work I guess that's about 6,000 pages, and each page, in order to, it's not like reading uh, the newspaper or reading a novel, each passage might take you weeks to uh, get some sense that you understand what's going on, uh, just the general idea, what they're talking about. It could take weeks, it could take months, sometimes it can take years. So your first encounter with the book, or certainly my first encounter, my reaction, Upon first encountering this book is one of being um, really overwhelmed by how difficult it is to understand, how cryptic and how massive, you know, both the size and the inexplicability of it. And so the passage that uh, I've chosen to draw your attention to today is fairly early. It's in the first volume. Of Daniel Matt's new translation, which is just called the, the Zohar. And in that edition, it's on page 237 of the first volume. And so what's going on here is that two rabbis, Rabbi Yaseeh and Rabbi Abba, have a conversation about a verse in Genesis. Most of the Zohar, you know, the the, the entire Work is uh structured around chronological discussion of the Torah with some very long and wide meanderings on the way um so they're discussing genesis five one, which begins this is the book of the generations of Adam that i so this is really you know pretty near the beginning of genesis it's It's right after the uh the whole episode in Eden, but before pretty much much else has happened and so about this verse the verse that says that begins this is the book of the generations of Adam Rabbi Abba says that this is a supernal mystery it's a a supernal book from which everything emerges from from which writing emerges and it's a book called the generations of Adam as if generations of Adam was the title of the book which book? the book of the completely righteous so that's that's the context and then the um the the section that i'm really interested in begins our mishnah mishnah the mishnah is the oral torah meaning the um traditions that were passed down orally beginning around i think the second or third century but um here in the zohar they're saying our mishnah and um daniel and in his footnote, comments that uh, the Zohar often cites teachings from a secret mystical Mishnah known only to its own circle. Our Mishnah. It says, um, It is written, The name of Hashem, the name of God, is a tower of strength into which the righteous one runs and is safe. That's a quote from uh, Proverbs 18, verse 10. Okay? Then the Zohar continues, this is the book of the generations of Adam who runs into that tower. Just to repeat it, the verse from Proverbs said, the name of God is a tower of strength into which the righteous one runs and is safe. And then the Zohar commented, this presumably, I mean, presumably I think this verse from Proverbs is the book of the generations of Adam. The book of generations of Adam being the fully righteous person who runs into that tower, the tower being the name of God, which is a tower of strength. And then the Zohar continues, this tower, what is its nature? This is the Tower of David. This is, and then it repeats the quote, the name of God is a tower of strength into which the righteous one runs and is safe. And the Zohar continues, all is one. Here is a cipher for scions of faith. And scion, S-C-I-O-N, which means like son, uh, especially like a son of a wealthy aristocratic family. Here's a cipher, they say, for the, for scions of faith. Now, the word that um, Daniel Matt is translating uh, from Aramaic as cipher, it, he's taking a little bit of poetic liberty, I think, and my suspicion about why is, uh, or what he's doing there is that... Um, that he's making a play on the uh you know the hebrew word for book which is sefer and the english word cipher because in this passage the rabbis are talking about how this passage is a book and i think both the ancient hebrew word sefer and uh, our modern word cipher um are etymologically connected and but i think it's uh indirect through the arabic word for zero and so book in hebrew being safer calling it a cipher is kind of a a play on on words i think i think that's why he chose to translate it that way i think a more literal translation might be knowledge rather than cipher um but it's just my guess so then returning to the passage what follows next what Daniel Nat is referring to as a cipher is uh, it's a table of letter permutations from this verse in Proverbs. is composed of three columns. Uh, each column has four lines and each square in the column, so uh, each each square in the table, so it's three by four. So there are 12 units in the table three by four and each one is composed of a three-letter it looks like a three-letter word but they're just they are three letters together in each of the uh cells of the table and then the final the final thing that the zohar has to say about it is uh there's one more line that says this is really the book of the generations of adam for science of faith as I may have mentioned, I had a fellowship from Harvard. I went to Israel and studied Kabbalah with some wonderful teachers there. And while I was there, you know, I, that's when I first encountered this, and it really jumped out at me. So to describe the cipher itself, uh, I think you'll have to trust me that it's not so difficult if you could see it, but just hearing me describe it, you might not get much out of it but uh, I'll give it a shot anyways. Um, What they've done here is they took the verse, and of course I'm making sense of this with Daniel Matt's commentary from the footnotes. I couldn't have figured this part out myself at all. Um, So the cipher is composed of the Hebrew letters from the verse which they were just introducing from Proverbs, the verse which says the name of God is is a tower of strength into which the righteous one runs and is safe so they they've taken the hebrew letters from that verse in proverbs and hebrew is written right to left so they start on the right but instead of writing in a line first they write from top to bottom and there are as i mentioned four lines so they start in the first top right and then go down one, two, three, four, then they move to the second column in the middle, go down one, two, three, four, move to the third column, one, two, three, four, and then something utterly bizarre happens, which I don't know why. Um, they take one letter from there, which is the last letter in the Hebrew name of God, and they move it someplace really weird, which I'll tell you when we get there. So they just skip one letter there, and then they continue going back to the just to, to square one line one but now instead of continuing to write top to bottom they go right to left so so each one of those cells gets a second letter continuing to write the verse from Proverbs but now it's going top right middle right left right and then goes down to the second line right to left to the third line right to left to the fourth line right to left and then now finally we go back to writing top down, you know, we return to square one, line one, going top to bottom, except now at the very, very last line on the first column gets that last letter of the name of God just stuck in kind of like in the middle of the verse somewhere, as we're continuing writing towards the end, the third letter of each, um, cell in the table top to bottom. The result is, as I've said, like 12 cells in this table, and each one has three letters. The implication in the text, you know, if you are reading um, from a bit further back than where I started here today, the impression that I got when I first encountered this was that they mean this cipher, this cipher is the book of the Generations of Adam, and the Book of the Generations of Adam is what the angel Raziel brought to Adam, a book which was brought to Adam after he had been expelled from paradise, which this book allowed him to make teshuva, to uh, return to God, to turn his heart back to God, to make repentance, and to return to paradise. So it's a big deal. The most likely explanation, I think, that... Um, the first the first reaction of one of my teachers was that, um, is that this is one of these magical ciphers, I guess, by which the um, medieval Kabbalists believed that they could derive uh, secret names of God or names of angels from the text of the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Now, the most famous example of this kind of medieval magical Kabbalistic cipher is what's called the Shim Meforash. I'm not sure again on the pronunciation, but uh, you can also find it just by searching. It's easier to, to find it by searching for what's called the uh, 72-letter name of God. What is the 72-letter name of God? The 72-letter name of God is a table like this, I suppose, that's extracted from three verses in the book of Exodus. Not just any three verses, essentially the key turning point of one of the most important stories in all of jewish scripture which is the exodus from egypt and there are three verses in the book of exodus in chapter 14 it's chapter 14 verses 19 20 and 21. these three verses do have a very peculiar feature that each of those three verses has exactly 72 letters it's unusual As far as I know, there are not any other examples of uh, three verses in the Torah having such a high degree of symmetry. And not only that, the verses themselves describe a turning point or a turning, you know? So uh, these, these verses from Exodus, what they say starting with uh, chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been going in front of the Israelite camp, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved away from in front of them and stood behind them. Verse 20. And he came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there were the cloud and the darkness, and it illuminated the night, and one did not draw near the other all night long. Verse 21. Verse 21 and moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the lord led the sea with the strong east wind all night and he made the sea into dry land and the waters split now what the kabbalists do with those three verses i'm just going to uh tell you from memory to keep this moving quickly but uh but if you're really interested, you should definitely double check this. But my memory of how it's, uh, of, what, of what they do to the verses is that they basically do what's described, I guess, in the verses themselves. So they write the first one, mo- the first line moving forward, and then the second line, they, they turn and write it backwards. And then the third verse, they turn back and write it forwards again. This was not entirely unusual or unprecedented in the ancient world. There, it, it was not not obviously yet standardized whether books were written right to left, left to right. And um, there were some books that were just written like that, where you would write you know, a line right to left, then the next line left to right, then the next line right to left. It actually makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking about it. So they, they write out these three, the, three verses that way first one going forward, the second one they write it backwards, and the third one written forwards again. And then what results is 72 columns of uh, three letters each. And what they say is that each of those three letter sets is a name of an angel. And somehow all of the 72 letters all of, all of them together are one big 72-letter name of God. This is kind of where I stumble on this. I'll, I'm just going to put it out there that I, um, I actually don't believe in these kinds of magical extractions of secret names from books. Who knows? I could be entirely wrong. I've never tried to do anything with any of these angelic names or with these uh with the similar cipher in, in the zohar that I was just describing and one of the big reasons why I've never tried anything is because I just don't I'm I'm not persuaded that um that that's what's really going on with whatever secrets may literally be encoded in these verses I'm actually even more inclined to say that yes Absolutely, the Kabbalists were right to select these passages as being of critical, spiritual, and mystical importance, but I don't believe that their power is hidden. I believe that it's in the literal surface meaning of those verses. Maybe that's pushing it a little bit too far to say in the literal surface meaning, but I don't think you need to do these kinds of magical calculations on the names, on the words, to Access the uh, the real redemptive, magical, mystical, spiritual power in these critical verses. What you need to do is really deeply, truly understand them, Me- using the meaning that the words have. In I suppose what's regular, non-magical usage of words and their meanings. I mean. I guess I'm, what I'm really tripping over trying to say is just, under, just to understand the, those verses in the context of both the wider story in the Torah and how that story is, plays out in your own personal life. But before we move on, I also want to draw your attention to the fact that um, there is a claim being made that the result of this cipher... The result of possessing this cipher and properly employing it is that it puts you in touch with invisible entities, with spirits, specifically in this context with angels. And on that note, let's turn now finally to um, Johannes Trithemius and his uh, Steganographia. So the Steganographia was a book that uh, Trithemius wrote around the end of the 15th century. It was published in 1606, which is a good, you know, almost 100 years after Tri- Trithemius's death. And um, in 1609, it was placed on the list of prohibited books. The, the book is very easy to find online. I'm actually looking at trithemius.com. Uh, at the moment, and there's a translation of it in English. It's, it was uh, written in Latin, I believe, and uh, um, that's the original. But it's also it's easy to find in both sides, both both versions online. And so, like the title of it in this translation gives it as steganography, that is, the sure art of disclosing the intention of one's mind to those who are absent through secret writing. And this book, on the surface, purports to be. A book about how to use uh, spirits how to summon spirits and get them to transmit secret messages across long distances to a partner on the receiving end who has the key which enables him to receive the message so on the surface it is a book about summoning spirits the first chapter for example starts off saying you know as as uh, just like to give a taste of the contents, it opens up saying, um, the operation of this first chapter is very difficult and full of danger on account of the haughtiness and rebellion of its spirits who do not obey anyone save him who is most skilled in this art. Uh, and so on and so on. So it's it's uh, teaching you invocations and, it, and the book goes on to give names of spirits, their symbols, numbers associated with them, and directions. And uh, it, it appears to be a book about summoning spirits, and, uh, but it indeed is not. The same year that it was published, sixteen o six, a key was also published. To the, there's there's a within the book there's like three sections, uh, three books. And so the key to the first two books was published, uh, which shows that the invocations actually are not what they appear to be. That um, if you take, for example, in in one invocation, every other every other letter of every other word, it spells out a message. And again, it's all in Latin, but these are very very simple codes. You know, it's not super sophisticated, but that is the book Secret, um, the way that you communicate your, what, the contents of your mind or your intentions, your secrets across distances. It's not like summoning a spirit, but you're really just writing a letter with a coded message inside of it. And the recipient has to know how to, you know, decode the message to extract it. but But there's nothing really properly magic about it, it's cryptography. I mean, it's certainly nothing supernatural, at least by my standards today. It's certainly not the supernatural magic procedure it purported to be on the surface. Now, there was a third book uh, within the within the steganographia that the key was not published for it, and uh, up until very recently, up until, what, 1998, it was Argued, you know, many people argued that it was exactly what it purported to be—that it was just another book about uh, It was another; it was a book about summoning spirits, and uh, it was only in ninety-eight there was a um, a researcher at AT and T Labs who succeeded in breaking the codes in this third book, which uh, the, the third book was unfinished, and presumably that's why there was no key published uh, to go along with it—is because the book was incomplete but this this uh researcher named jim reeds uh, was able to to decode it and demonstrate that it is uh, definitively not a book of magic it's another book of um cryptography just like the first two and so i guess i guess where i'm going with all this and what i'm kind of trying to tease out or discern is first of all what the relationship was between medieval magic and what I might broadly call espionage, for lack of a better term, but uh, I think I mean something more like covert military operations or even better, like covert political intrigues, I think is more accurate. And I have recently learned that the the medieval magician John Dee was... Um, associated with, uh, in communication with with William Cecil, who was the chief advisor of Queen Elizabeth I. The the secretary of um, Queen Elizabeth I being Francis Walsingham, who is widely considered to be sort of the father of Western espionage, I suppose. And bringing it back to the Zohar then, when I started off, I suppose diving into these magic squares and what what I might call magic ciphers, I was curious what the connection might be between these tables, which appear to be tables of angelic names or uh permutations of verses of Hebrew scripture in the zohar i was I was curious what the connection between those might be and these magic squares, for example, in and Trithemius, which are not so very magical at all, although they appear to be on the surface, although they claim to be on the surface, about uh, contacting spirits or or communicating through or with uh, spirits. I was curious if the magical permutations in the Zohar might also have a more mundane cryptological aspect to them with perhaps even political applications. But after considering it, I don't think that they are Uh, And my current working hypothesis or working theory, working understanding is that there was a widespread belief in these kinds of um, word permutations and processes for producing angelic names or the names of supernatural beings from especially verses of scripture. And that there were many, perhaps even the majority, involved were sincere and sincerely believed in magic and spirits and within that wider category of medieval magicians there was a smaller subcategory of spies and cryptographers claiming I suppose at least on the surface to be involved in magic but in reality I suppose using that as a cover for um for espionage and intrigue, and then, as I keep saying, we'll talk about Aleister Crowley in another episode. But there's uh, a, f- a fair, a fairly strong argument has been made that he was um, working with British intelligence from the very beginning of his career as an occultist. So there's definitely an overlap in the fifteenth, sixteenth centuries, probably moving forward, um, an overlap between occultism and espionage, and even quite a lot of overlapping interests and themes, particularly demonology jumps out as uh, something that has a lot in common with counter-espionage, with with counterintelligence, the search for hidden or concealed or invisible adversaries. And I'm sure there are plenty more examples, and, um, this is something I'm looking forward to learning more about and talking more about. So I'm hoping to have some, uh, really interesting guests coming on for some upcoming episodes. I hope you'll keep an eye out. Hope you found this interesting. I hope it's not too tedious to listen to me stumbling through some of these things that just don't make sense, but, uh... But I do enjoy the puzzle. I do enjoy the challenge. And, uh, and who knows, maybe in the end it really is all about the angels. Eight, zero, eight, four, one, nine, eight, N.